You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for the last 11 years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, UFC 296, the last UFC event of 2023, Saturday night, T-Mobile Arena, Las Vegas, Nevada, left us with a lot to talk about this week. Leon Edwards and Alexander Pantoja both successfully defended their titles. Some important wins from some up-and-comers, some heartbreaking, perhaps, losses from some old veterans, and at least one, maybe two, knockout-of-the-year candidates on this card. So, to the surprise of no one, we ended up getting an awful lot of listener mail this week. We are going to go ahead and spend this episode of the show trying to get through as much of that as we can. We're not going to get through all of it. So my apologies to anybody whose listener mail doesn't make it on the air this week. If you sent in a question not related to UFC 296, we did get some very good ones, but we're just flat probably not going to get to those because we got to get to the topical information first and foremost. Before we get into any of that, Ben, though, how you doing? What's going on this week? Well, I'm still kind of reeling from what was an emotional roller coaster of a football game that we both attended on Saturday. You know, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk more about that on our assorted Patreon properties, but my God, my God, our Montana Grizzlies, they're going to the national championship, Chad. Headed to the chipper for the first time in a long time. Uh, we did get some emails about that, and I will try to work them into the show. I know so you will. We'll just see how that goes. One thing, surprisingly enough, that we didn't get any emails about Ben that boy good Shavkat Rachmanov goes out there taps out the wonder man Stephen Thompson in the second round rear naked choke got got Thompson to tap out right before the end of the round yeah which tells you something about how tight and effective that choke must have been because here you got Stephen Thompson a longtime veteran of the UFC and the sport you'd think four seconds if it was anything other than feeling like he was going to die he probably would have made it to the end of the round i saw some criticism i guess of shavkat rachmanov in the wake of this how who who dares to criticize that boy good shavkat rachmanov after he goes out there and becomes the first person to ever submit steven the wonder man thompson well let me tell you what it was i don't i'm not co-signing it i don't necessarily agree with it he's 18 and 0 with 18 stoppages, hard to get better than that. That's as good as you can do yeah. last time I checked. Mm-hmm. Uh, but people out here saying kind of boring, kind of a boring performance from Shavkat Rachmanov. Is this the kind of that boy good performance that is going to rocket you to the top of the welterweight division? Well, okay. I did see afterwards they were talking about how his ankle was really badly hurt. And that's why he didn't want to throw any kicks or anything that they had thought about pulling out of the fight altogether, but he wanted to stay in it. You go in there hurt, you still, there's not a single moment of the fight that you are not winning. And 
you end it in the second round with a submission on a guy who had never been submitted before. I mean, if you're going to sit around here and talk some shit on that performance, what do you want? What would even make you happy? Is I just can't understand that. You know some people that Stephen Thompson has been in there with, Chad? Bilal Muhammad, Gilbert Burns, you know, Vicente Luque, uh, Jorge Masvidal, Tyron Woodley a couple few times, Jake Ellenberger, Bobby Knuckles, Robert goddamn Whitaker, Chad, uh, Matt Brown, all these people, people who know a damn thing about fighting, you know, and this guy is not somebody who has been finished very often, and you're going to sit around here after that. He Stephen Thompson has all of one loss by knockout and one loss by submission on his record. The knockout came that Anthony Pettis caught him with that sneaky shot. The submission here where Shavkat, that boy good Rachmanov, was just steamrolling him basically the whole way through and then did that thing he does. You're going to come away from that and be like, I was not sufficiently entertained? No. I say to you, no, sir. I reject that argument. All right, here's the next question then. Top five welterweight contenders in the wake of Leon Edwards' win over Colby Covington. Number one, Kamaru Usman. Number two, Bilal Muhammad. Number three, Colby Covington. Number four, Gilbert Burns. Number five, that boy good, Shavkat Rachmanov. Now, you really only see two reasonable options in the top five there, right? You see Bilal who the UFC does not seem incredibly high on. And then you got that boy good, who perhaps the UFC does seem fairly high on. Do we see Shavkat Rachmanov become the number one contender in perhaps a next fight for Leon Edwards? And does he deserve it? Is he is he deserving of number one contender status at this point? You know, I'd have no problem at all seeing him get the next title shot. I know there's a part of me that feels bad for Bilal just because yeah. how long he's been here, how many straight wins that he's stacked up. You know, he had that fight against Leon Edwards that ended and when he got poked in the eye. It's really hard for me to sit here and, and to, I'm, I'm picturing Bilal Muhammad's face when he hears yeah. he's not getting the title shot. I was just going to say. And it breaks we my might heart. Have to, we would have to put Bilal Muhammad on like a, a, a personal health watch because... Yeah. He's probably going to eat a whole box of ice cream bars yeah. so when, when he finds out. When someone tells him that he's not getting the title shot, they need to start that conversation by asking him if he is mentally in a place where he can hear some information that is going to hurt him. You know, we need to just, we need to handle that carefully if that's the way it goes. That's the, that's really the only thing holding me back because God damn it. You look at what Shavkat Rachmanov has done in his career for all we know, he's not even aware that a fight can end by decision. <laughs> he doesn't know about the judges? He might not even know that there are judges present at these fights. He might not know that there's somebody, there's a few people sitting around the cage judging his performance with a series of, of numbers scribbled onto their little note cards because we have never once needed them. Never in his entire professional career. So... If you say that guy is getting the next shot, I go, shit, man. Not only does he deserve the next shot not only or deserve a shot, I could see him rolling in there maybe as a little bit of a betting favorite over the champ Leon Edwards at this point. Wow. Who knows? 
Wow. Who knows? It's it, but then I picture Bilal's face. Yeah. I picture the the heartbreak and the emotions rippling across his his visage, and I get sad. That's the only <laughs> yeah. thing stopping me. I get sad too. Bilal Muhammad seems like a nice guy. Seems yeah. like a good guy. Obviously, very socially and social media aware guy, a guy who has uh, done a good job marketing himself is another guy who's done pretty much everything you could do to get the title shot. You know what? I guess now that I'm talking about it, I wouldn't mind winding them up and see him, seeing them fight each other. Ooh, Number see, one contender fight that well, boy. Good against Bilal Muhammad. You could do that. Um, remember the name that boy. Good against. Remember the name. I mean, that does seem like some fun stuff to put on a poster. <laughs> I will say, I will say though, they they both fought Stephen Thompson. Only one of them finished him. And wow. if, is that fair? Is that a fair statement? It's a true statement. It's a statement of fact. Yeah. Also, if we're going to do this thing where we look at somebody's win and we go, mm, I was not that entertained with the way you went about winning this cage fight stripped to the waist against another man trying to hurt you. Let's remember that Bilal Muhammad's last victory was at one over Gilbert Burns, where Gilbert clearly hurt himself early on in the fight, and Bilal kind of cruised to a five-round decision over him. I'm just saying I didn't want to do it. You made me do it. But there it is. (laughs) You make a fairly compelling case, but I'm going to say the number one contender fight. That's what I want to see. Remember, you're listening to the co-main event podcast proper. If you like what you hear here, Friends, we implore you to check us out over on Patreon. We got audio and video content over there all week long. Patreon.com slash co-main event. Go over there and check us out. We invite you to join the team at any one of our four handy tiers of patronage. You could also scoop up some merchandise over at co-mainevent.com slash shop. We got all kinds of cool stuff over there. We got the Bobby Knuckles t-shirt. We got the Volcomania t-shirt. We got the daddest man on the planet coffee mugs. We got the Are You Fucking Kidding Me shirts. We got the old school Dundasso shirts. Anything you want, basically. Go over there and scoop that up. Again, that is uh, comainevent.com slash shop or comainevent.com. Click the link that says shop, I should say. All right. Let's get into this. Let's get into these questions. I don't want to take too long before we start going through these. First question this week comes to us from Luke Preza. Now, see, here's here's what Luke's doing, endearing himself to me. His last name is spelled P-R-E-J-Z-A. So he goes ahead and provides a handy pronunciation guide. Yeah. It actually says, for your convenience, Chad. Thank you, Luke. Thank you for doing that for my convenience. He writes, what's up, friends? I'll try to keep it short and sweet. Was Leon Edwards really that boring? I'm hearing people in the MMA world who I respect uh, voice their opinions about how boring the main event was and how bad of a look it was for Edwards. I just don't see it that way at all. I thought Leon put on a masterclass and completely nullified anything Colby wanted to do and even beat Colby at his own game. If this were a big boxing match, we'd be talking about how great of a performance it was. Just wanted to know your thoughts on this. Merry Christmas to both of you fine young gentlemen. Now see... He's endearing himself to us coming and going, giving me a handy pronunciation guide, and then at the end, referring to us as young. Yeah, so, fine young gentlemen, yeah. that's what we are. Feel free to write the show anytime, Luke, now that we're we're all best friends. This was not a boring performance from Leon Edwards. It was, I agree, masterclass. I thought he was masterful out there against Colby Covington, beat Colby Covington in every way you could possibly beat him. Again, did kind of a John Jones thing. 
as is referred to in this email where he was like, oh, you want to wrestle? That's what you're good at? Okay, well, I will beat you in wrestling as well as, as on the feet. And, you know, while this was a weird game plan and a weird fight for Colby Covington, which I'm sure we will talk about in a moment, this is how you have to fight Colby Covington, right? You don't want to go out there and rush into something against Colby Covington because, you know, the way he was hanging back, especially in this fight, seemed like he was waiting, waiting to maybe take take uh, Leon Edwards down if he got the opportunity. So I thought, especially considering the high emotions, the bad blood that was out there between these two guys leading up to this fight, Leon Edwards did everything he had to do, a very measured, technical, and ultimately overwhelming approach. And uh, I, I give him high marks for it, frankly. Yeah, I think if if he's getting criticism for how he won that fight, it's because sometimes people will look at a fighter who seems like he's very skilled, can do all the stuff, doesn't have any glaring weaknesses, and they kind of go, you seem like you could do more, and you don't need to, and so you're not. Which is not necessarily a fair criticism, especially when... You're the goddamn champ. And you have everything to lose in these fights. You, your objective got to be stay the champ, keep making a cut of the pay-per-views. That's how you get into some next tier of payment in the UFC, which, as we've seen, still isn't even all that high. But that's where the action is for you, is to stay the champ and to keep get, racking up these title defenses. And so you go out there and you realize, oh, this guy is going to let me leg kick him and, you know, right straight him to death every once in a while. Okay. I'll, I can do that. I can do that for five rounds and clearly win in these rounds and doesn't really need to expose himself to too much risk because of it. There's so many ways to lose an MMA fight. Uh, there's so many things that can go wrong. If you go in there and you find, Oh, I can just do a couple things here and I can beat this guy. I go home with the belt. And then it means I get to show up some other time in the future with the belt and get that, get that money each time. Why wouldn't you do that? And yet people are kind of hanging back being like, we really wanted to see you fuck this guy up super bad, which, hey, I get it. (laughs) I definitely understand where that would come from. To me, you alluded to a little bit. To to me, the the baffling game plan here was Colby Covington's. Yeah, he couldn't fight that way and win the fight. That's not the fight he needed to have to win the fight. I don't. Were you going to go out there and tell a man that you're taking him to the seventh layer of hair? Hell. And then say the seventh level of hell and then imply that his father is going to be there, his murdered father. You're going to take him to the seventh layer of hair and that his murdered father is going to be there. And then you go out there and fight this fight. Yeah. Like, I mean, we all knew that no matter what he said beforehand, Colby Covington was not going to come in there just throwing huge murder ball shots. He was going to come in there and look to wrestle. Uh, that's that's the kind of thing that he does. But I don't understand how he formulated this plan or this approach, how he saw himself fighting this way and saw himself winning that fight. That's not what you do, bro. Like, you're not some kind of super fast, super skilled counter striker that can hang back, wait for the other guy to go first and then make him pay for it. That's never been what you do. You're a charging forward, high pace, weaponized cardio kind of fighter where you just are overwhelming people with activity. You don't punch especially hard. You don't have a whole lot of finishes. You don't have a great submissions game either. So you got to be doing stuff and you got to be doing stuff right away. You can't wait until later in a fight to try to win that way. 
I don't understand how he thought that this approach was going to equal a victory against Leon Edwards. But I do appreciate, as Luke points out here, you could tell that Leon Edwards wanted to make a point of proving that not only was he not scared of the wrestling game, he was actually willing to do it when he didn't need to. And you could hear the commentary team getting nervous for him at times. But like, especially early on where it'd be like Colby would get a, a takedown on him and Leon would get right back up pretty quickly before Colby had a chance to do anything with it. And then once they were back up and in the clinch would go for his own takedown. And they were arguing, oh, you know, he doesn't need to. And he's getting himself into the, the ground game where it it's not going to go well for him every single time. But he was making the point that I can take you down too. And that anytime I get taken down, I can get back up. Like, except for there toward the end, like in the, the fifth round, you didn't see Leon Edwards end up in any situations where when he was taken down, he seemed at a loss or that that Colby even seemed capable of getting much offense going. He was getting back up on his own pretty quickly and without sustaining damage in order to do it. Like That, I thought, was impressive and that kind of shut down anything that Colby Covington might have thought that he could do there. Yeah, if anything, uh, it seems like it seemed to me like uh, perhaps Colby Covington was a little bit intimidated of the power of uh, of Leon Edwards. He didn't want to be the next boom headshot dead guy, and so uh, he he was either that or he was trying to bait him in. I don't I don't know which one. Uh, After four rounds of that, you got to think like maybe he's not going to take the bait, you know. Maybe you're going to have to go get this guy. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I saw it from veteran MMA journalist Josh Gross that the first thing that Colby Covington said was the seventh level of hair before he corrected himself and said the seventh layer of hell, whatever it was. So gonna, I would have to check the tape to know if that's accurate. But if it was, that's an all-time gaffe. <laughs> it's an all-time gaffe. Uh, I want to get this one in there from Hair Danny Boy the Third, who wrote subject line: "Success has a thousand father- fathers, while failure is an orphan." He writes, "Where does Colby Covington go from here? He's now toxic to sponsors, managed to turn his fans against him, has no gym, MMA masters, get the fuck out of here, no gift of gab, is zero and three in title fights, has had zero individual bonuses of any kind. His last finish goes back to 2016, if you don't count Tyron Woodley's rib injury." His last win over a current UFC fighter goes back to 2018 against a former lightweight, and he's on the wrong side of 30. Thoughts? Do you think he really thought he won this? Or do you think it was theatrics when the decision was read? I mean, I thought that it was honestly the most the most alike to Trump he has ever managed to be is, you know... He, he wants so badly to be MMA's Donald Trump, to, to associate himself with Donald Trump, goes over there, talks to him and everything before getting in the cage and, you know, just thanking the man for all his help and everything. You know, like Donald Trump gives a shit whether Colby Covington lives or dies. He wants so badly to be a, a Donald Trump over here in this space. And the closest he ever came, I thought, was standing there in the cage after the fight with blood running down his face as he insisted he did not have a scratch on him, that he thought he won this fight, no suffered no damage, and don't have a scratch on me. Bro, you are bleeding as you say that. You lie from a standing position, Colby Covington. We could all see the blood on your face. There's been blood on your face for some time now. We all watched it happen, and you just ins- insist 
No, I did not lose. No, none of the things that you can see have happened have happened. Showing up to the press conference afterwards and saying, the, you know, I definitely won rounds three, four, and five, but the judges weren't going to give it to me because they hate Trump. And just like this constant whining insistence that I am, I deserve all these things that I am not being given because there are, there's all this unfair forces aligned against me. Like that is classic Donald sh- sh- Trump shit, bro. Can't ever just lose with dignity. Can't be like, I tried my best, came up short, I'll try again next time. Nope. Always got to be that you were wronged somehow. That an egregious injustice has been done here this day, no matter what. Like, that's that's a classic Trump move. Colby Covington learned from the best at that, you know? On that same topic, I'm going to read this one from Jart Harley Barvis, who wrote in, Hey guys, more of an observation here than a question. Everyone talks about the Drake curse, but I just want to point out that with Donald Trump being at the last two pay-per-views, as the UFC absolutely refuses to let us ignore, only one American-born fighter has won while he's been cage-side during these last two events. And that alone American winner was Josh Emmett, flat earth lining Bryce Mitchell, so at best, that feels like a wash. Is Donald J. Trump directly causing the downfall of American mixed martial arts? I'm (laughs) just saying. Uh, Good email from Jart Harley Barvis, including... Flat Earth lining. Yeah, Grace I get Mitchell. it. I see what see happened what he there. Did there? Uh-huh. See what he did there. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Trump curse? Is there a Trump curse happening? I mean, we heard about the Drake curse. Drake Drake put a bet on Leon Edwards here, though, didn't he? Oh, did he really? Maybe he finally he learned his lesson. I don't, I I saw somewhere that he put a bet on him. He might have though bet on him to win by knockout or something. So in which case, maybe that's who to blame if you felt like it was a boring uh, decision fight, but. Uh, the thing with where again we're doing a thing where like we have to make a scene of Dana White and Donald Trump and Kid Rock, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> all walking brain out there trust, together. yeah, just a brain trust sitting out there. The thing that I like most about it is just how bored they look most of the time. You got these guys out there. Kid Rock is is wearing his hat and his sunglasses, and Trump's sitting up there. Every time you see him through the cage, they're just they look. Like they're watching people put up wallpaper in there, just like they couldn't be more bored. And then Colby is in the cage thanking Trump for all of his help, and Trump is hitting the bricks. He's hitting the exit at that point, just like, get me out of here as fast as you fucking can so I can go back and sit in a gold-plated, gilded room by myself and probably bathe myself in uh, hand sanitizer after I've been out among the proletariat at this UFC event trying to put on airs like those are my people. Yeah. The, the Seeing the clip of him walking out during Colby Covington's speech, I know Colby Covington is going to keep a, a stiff upper lip in public on shit like that, but that has to sting a little bit, doesn't it? A little bit, you'd think. A little bit. Think. All right, next question comes to us from Darkwing Duck, who writes, Flyweights are the best. Pantoja and Roy Vall put on a how-to guide at UFC 296 in How to Be Great. Fast pace, fun scrambles, cool punches and kicks. Even when Pantoja got tired, he fought better than a lot of than any heavyweight on the roster. Discuss this absolute gem of a division. Alexander Pantoja went out there. I was going to say he pitched a shutout. One judge did give one round to Brandon Royval, but uh, this is, again, a reminder that maybe this guy in Pantoja that has flown a little bit under the radar 
in the same way that the men's flyweight division flies under the radar, is legitimately a pretty fun champion. Like, aggressive, gets in on the takedowns, is pretty fun to watch on the ground. Seems to have a a, a never-say-die attitude out there, and I agree wholeheartedly with the email. This is just a, a fun-ass fight between Pantoja and Roy Val, even though, you know, it was a rematch and we didn't get a different... We didn't get a different outcome. Maybe you could see this one coming a little bit. What was going to happen here? But, uh, you know, good fight. Good fight between these two guys. This division uh, uh, really regularly serves up high-level championship fights. And I think it's, it's you know, the sport is all the better for it. Yeah. You know, similar to what Darkwing Duck is saying here, one of the things that I was thinking as I was watching this fight, especially as you get down there in the fourth and fifth round, is that, like, somehow, even when you can clearly tell that Pantoja is tired, he's still pretty good. You know, like, usually you tell you can tell somebody's tired and you're like, oh, that's, you can see that their chances of winning going down. You can see that their ability is going down. And with him, you can see he is visibly tired and yeah. yet still can do dope shit still a good fighter which that's impressive to me and and it's relatable you know yeah i i know that <laughs> that that body posture out there just kind of like oh not sure how much is left in the tank here oh there's a little bit found a little bit the the, the needle's kind of on e but we still got a little bit we can pass this gas station make it to the next one i i am impressed by that and i enjoy watching it pantoja now owner of five wins in a row and a nickname which is the cannibal you see now that that's that one still vexes me a little bit how come i mean it's you know if you're trying to strike fear in the heart of an opponent you're like i literally eat other people but you don't but you don't though we all know you don't and we talked we had this conversation before i think a couple years ago about would you sight unseen? Would you rather fight a guy nicknamed the Cannibal or a guy nicknamed like Pooh Bear or something? You know, like something cutesy <laughs> like that. Because again, like I have enough faith, just barely, in the safety measures in this sport, the athletic commissions, the refs, all the 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 fail safe stuff here, to believe that whatever else happens out there in the cage during a mixed martial arts contest, they're not going to allow this man to eat and consume my flesh. That is probably just not going to happen. I'm probably going to be safe from at least that, even though there's many, many other terrible things that can happen. So you go out there and you're like, I'm the cannibal. Like, no, you're not. You're not. You just think that that sounds scary or something, but you are not going to eat people. Stop it. Whereas, you know, if you you went out there and you were Pooh Bear, I'd be like, well, he must be hard as hell to be walking around here as Pooh Bear. Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. I think you might be right. Uh, in terms of who's up next at flyweight, you got Amir Albazi down here, ranked number two. Uh, he is on a six-fight win streak. Got the split decision over Kai Carr of France back in June. And so, you know, you might be looking at him as a number one contender. I feel like we need to do something about how the, the rankings are set up here in the UFC because... You got all these divisions, right, where, for example, Pantoja is a champion, and the number one ranked contender is Brandon Moreno. Sean O'Malley is the champion at bantamweight. The number one contender is Aljamain Sterling. 
Leon Edwards is the champion at welterweight. The number one contender is Kamaru Usman. Sean Strickland is the number or is the champion at middleweight. The number one contender is Israel Adesanya. You see that? You see what they're doing here? Yeah. Like I understand those guys might be the second best fighter in that weight class, but if your rankings are supposed to have some utility, some usage here, something that we can look at, you gotta maybe you got a rule where if you lose the championship, we gotta we gotta knock you out for six months or something. It just doesn't make any sense. Well, especially when somebody has been the champion for a little while, they lose that fight. People don't want to be like, okay, now you're suddenly the number five ranked dude in the division. I don't want to move you that far down. Especially because it's like, if you were number one and you lost to number two, you kind of swap places is the way people look at it. I understand what you're saying in terms of like a functional how to run a division kind of thing where we we don't want to just see same two guys fight for the belt over and over again, though we have on many occasions seen exactly that for like a year or more. But yeah, I I don't know exactly how you're supposed to do it, especially because the same problem that we always talk about where the guys who get in that top five in kind of any weight class and feel themselves maybe within spitting distance of a title shot, nobody wants to fight anybody lower than them at that point. Everybody's trying to be like, what's what's the one that gets me into a title shot if I don't already think that I could sit out for the next nine months and get one anyway? Next question this week comes to us from Shadrap, who writes, uh, I don't have my finger on the pulse of Patty Pimblet fandom, but does he really need a knockout or dominant win in his next fight or two? His last two fights have been lackluster, and I feel I'm losing any interest I had in him. Now again, see, we're going to... Sort of like what we tried to do to uh, Leon Edwards and Shavkat Rachmanov here a little bit. Patty Pimblett gets the unanimous decision. Uh, clean slate, 30-27s across the board. Victory over Tony Ferguson. Man, he tried to finish him. Yeah. He's out there getting him on the ground, throwing that heavy leather. And uh, Tony Tony Ferguson, for everything else that we could say about him, and I'm sure we will in a moment's time, Still a tough-ass dude, man. Yeah. That's a hard out right there. Yeah, and you could see that also Patty Pimlet ran right up to the line of uh, gassing himself out trying to finish Tony yeah. Ferguson early on in that fight, and I think he realized that and said had to get a little more conservative once he realized he probably had a lead on the scorecards. But you're right. In that first round, he, he's landed some clean shots on Tony Ferguson, and it's just that Tony is still that tough dude who can take him and still stand there and throw some back at you. I I think, though, that this is why we were saying before this fight that this was a tough situation for Patty Pimlet to be in. Because yeah. he's already kind of coming off this that last fight. I mean, the commentary was trying to do a little bit of revisionist history in his favor, right? And they were trying, like, right off the bat. Like, as soon as he walks in the cage, you know, Tony not even present yet. And they're already like, well, hey, Jared Gordon is super good. It wasn't that Patty looks bad. Jared Gordon is just super good. Two things can be true, as I am often reminded in therapy, Chad. He looked shitty in that Jared Gordon fight. He looked like one of the most hittable dudes in the division just right there and kept getting caught with the same combination that everybody else could see coming. He looked bad in that fight, was lucky to get a win somehow in that fight. And then he comes into this one, looks better in a lot of ways, but also looked like he thought maybe he was going to, when he was connecting the way he was with Tony, he was going to get him out of there when he realized that wasn't going to happen and that he, that maybe this is where Tony Ferguson's 
Navy SEAL training was going to come in handy if everybody had to test their cardio was like, let me take this dude down and hold him here. Let me keep him on his back where I feel like he is a little less dangerous and wait it out until I get a decision, which I can't blame him for that. But it also, that's why it was sort of a no-win situation because it's like, if you went out there and you slept Tony Ferguson, well, thanks a lot. You made us all sad. And if you went out there and just wanted, had to settle for winning a decision over Tony Ferguson, shit, man, you couldn't even finish old-ass Tony Ferguson. And, you know, God forbid, if you went out there and tried really hard to finish him and ended up losing, well, then, LOL, bro, you officially suck. You know? Here's one from Brandon Boyd. Brandon M. Boyd. He's oh, we're doing that time. now? Yeah. He writes, Patty Pimblett got the W against Tony Ferguson. While neither of them looked great, you have to sort of admire how Patty handled everything. He came out, didn't get into any real trouble, and thankfully didn't knock Tony out into the land of wind and ghosts. I was also impressed that he gave Tony props in his post-fight interview, and in his press conference he said Tony could still win against other fighters in the division. I think I'm slowly getting on the Patty train. If he stays from being an insufferable prick, what would it take you? To, what would it take to get you on board? Now... The worst thing that Patty Pimblett has done is some of his anti-immigrant tweets, right? Like, that's that's the most objectionable thing Patty Pimblett has done. As long as you stay true to the don't Google the fighters, yeah, don't find out any single thing about a fighter that you want to be able to enjoy watching. I mean, you know, professionally, Patty Pimblett hasn't had too many missteps, I don't think, in the UFC itself. He's kind of, he's done his job. He's talked some trash. He's he seemed a little bit relatable in the terms that he gets a little fat between fights. And uh, I don't know. It's, it's uh, I probably wouldn't want to hang out with the guy for a long period of time. I don't think I would want to have a political discussion with him, probably. But just in terms of being kind of an interesting, curiosity-peaking figure in MMA, I don't, you know, I don't think he's been that bad, honestly. Yeah, I do wonder what do you do with him now as, from a matchmaking perspective? Oh, man, do we have the question for you. Okay. Did you have anything else you wanted to say about Patty? Because otherwise I'll get into this question. Let's get into this question. Mr. Peanut Butter. Oh, good. Right. Which at this point is a throwback reference, right? Mr. Peanut Butter? Bojack Horseman? Bojack Horseman character? Yeah. He writes, with Connor's return on the horizon, I don't understand why more people aren't talking about this. Connor needs a warm-up fight and preferably a win. He should not get fo- he should not fight killers like Chandler or Poirier first. Patty isn't going to be as tough a test, but he is a very interesting fighter with a huge fan base. It would be enormous, especially in Europe. If Connor wins, great. There's your warm-up fight and he's ready to fight Chandler. If Patty wins, also great. He's a huge star who would become a household name overnight. Seems like a win-win scenario and license to print money that the UFC is just overlooking. Now, my initial reaction would be, don't put that evil out into this world. But then when I think about it for a second, I don't hate it, honestly. I don't honestly hate it don't either. hate it as an idea. Especially if you did it somewhere overseas. You know, if you did it one of the events that you have in the UK or really anywhere over on the other side of the Atlantic, that'd be a huge fight. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean... I think that the trouble you would have is getting Conor McGregor to agree to it, which is the case for 95% of the fights that you might actually want to see Conor McGregor in at this point. Because he would have to have the wherewithal to look at it and be like, well, shit, you can't lose to Patty Pimblett, bro. Yeah. You absolutely <laughs> cannot. 
They will never let you hear the end of it. You lose to Dustin Poirier. I mean, he's a hardened veteran of this sport, well-respected, top-of-the-division kind of guy. That could happen to anybody. You lose to Patty Pimblett? Bruh. Yeah. Bruh. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't know if that's a, a fight Conor McGregor takes unless he is unless he is 100% sure he's going to win. Otherwise, he seems to consider himself certainly among the elite, even if the recent performances have not necessarily uh, proved him right. He but, still considers himself one of the cream of the crop type guys. I think Patty Pimblett seems like a significant step backward, unless... Unless you were going to pay him a lot of money. Well, or unless the thing I was going to say is, you know, Conor McGregor is not going to get out of bed unless he's getting a cut of the pay-per-view. And you could maybe sell him on the idea that pay-per-view-wise, the ratio of pay-per-view buys to actual physical risk to you would probably be kind of ideal in a Patty Pimlet matchup. Because the other ones that you could conceivably think about Conor McGregor doing are all probably much tougher fights with a, a lower winning chance for him. Whereas this one, because of just its wood watchability and the, the name value each guy brings and the kind of the fan base that each guy brings, you, you'd do really well with that one on pay-per-view, I think. And which directly, I mean, for Patty Pimlet, it would mean less. He'd probably still going to get his show and win money. But for Conor McGregor, you know, you're getting a cut of the pay-per-views. That's going to matter. Plus, you might look at that one and be like, if I did want to ease back in here after breaking my damn leg, this this one is a little bit of an ease and still would pay pretty damn well. On the other side of the coin, we got this one from Long Live Gunu. He writes, do we even try to book Tony Ferguson versus Jim Miller at UFC 300 with both vets retiring at the end? Or do we just go ahead and cut El Kakui? Believe it or not, the two have never fought each other and the matchup seems appropriate at this stage in their careers. Do you agree? Would now, watch. Would yeah, absolutely Hashtag would, would watch. watch. And if you're going to book something for Tony Ferguson, I mean, why not? Why not Jim Miller at UFC 300? It would be a solid undercard or preliminary uh, fight, and you know, probably one people would be interested in. Probably one we could, ex- you know, uh, we could make peace with it mm-hmm. in our own minds. It wouldn't seem like you were sacrificing Tony Ferguson to a to a young up and comer again. And so it would probably be, probably be okay. Probably be fine. Probably be the right move. Now, Dana White did the thing that he loves to do where he comes out after a fight and says, God, I would just really love it. If this guy would retire, I wish Tony Ferguson would just hang it up, not fight anymore. And of course the rest of us are standing around being like, if that's the case, you could just cut him. You could you could turn him out of his contract. Mm-hmm. You could you could leave it in the hands of Tony Ferguson to say you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. But that's not what they're going to do, is it? They're going to keep Tony Ferguson under his contract, and so you know he doesn't have a lot of options. He could retire for real, or he could just sit there and not fight, or just keep taking fights in the UFC. Those are kind of his options. Yeah, I, the thing I like about. A, a Tony Ferguson versus Jim Miller kind of fight is it's a couple of peers, Chad. We're going to keep giving these guys some fights. Match them up against a peer. Stop trying to take the old guys and feeding them to the young guys. Trying to get that shine to wear off a little bit while they still have a name. 
let them have let let two gentlemen of a certain age yeah get in there and have themselves a mixed martial arts fight i do think there's something about the phrasing of this question though from long live gunu about do we try to book it with both vets retiring at the end? Like, is that something we say? Like, <laughs> like that's a stipulation. Like, okay, look, guys, I want us all to reach an understanding here. Here's a fight. Be good for both of you. A good one to go out on. UFC 300. Be a big one. All that stuff. But let's come to a a gentleman's arrangement that, however this one goes, it's going to be the last hurrah for both of you. Sound good? Sound yeah. good? Because if not. If not, I'm going to go find a Magomed who's fucking 27 years old and, and hungry for your blood. And I'm going to put you in there against that guy. Otherwise, if we can all be cool about this. You guys can go out there and, you know, everybody can feel good about it. I like that idea. Retirement match. Yep. And not even, a, double, not even a double loser retirement retires. Match. It's just like. Here we go. We're going out there. It's old timers day at the UFC one last time in the spotlight. And then, you know, we'll put you on each of you on your own separate ice flows and shove you off into the sea. <laughs> All right. Moving on to the undercard here. We got this question from Jizzy B who writes, seems like Bryce Mitchell found out the hard way that short notice fights ain't for everyone as he was flatlined like the earth by the hands of Josh Emmett. Was that the KO of the year as it did not make me feel good to see Mitchell convulsing like a farm chicken with its head cut off. But what I found more surprising was that it was Emmett's first KO win since 2019. Where do both men go from here? Another flat earth flatline joke from the, uh, the beloved CME listening. Audience. Tough resist that one. I, I get it. I get it. This, this, I mean, I, it's obviously on the contender list for knockout of the year, but honestly, perhaps I'm just showing my age and general squeamishness at this point, but this was a scary ass knockout. It was. Especially when the camera accidentally showed Bryce Mitchell convulsing as though he were having a seizure in the octagon, which is a thing they don't normally like to show. No, I was surprised at that too. I was especially surprised at Joe Rogan drawing attention to it. And maybe that's just a symptom of Joe Rogan not really caring what the UFC would prefer to have him do these days. You know, he's going to do it however he wants to do it. Because normally you're right. They will focus on the dude who won and not the dude who, for all we know, may be experiencing a serious medical incident right now. And, you know, then when we see him get up, then we'll, we'll go over there and check on the guy. But... Especially, you know, from having the difference when you're at the arena for some of those fights and when you're watching it on TV is when you were just sitting there in the crowd, you can see it. Sometimes you'll realize that guy is down for a while. That guy looked like he was in a bad way there for a while. And none of that will make the broadcast. They will very carefully keep it off. And Joe Rogan was really drawing attention to it. He was like, look at him. Look at his feet shaking. Look like he's having a seizure. And you're just like, bro, I, I, this is not like... Uh, a video game where it's like, oh man, that guy's super fucked up because it's like, yeah, he is. And like in those seconds after a really bad knockout like that, you you don't know how that's going to turn out. We're hoping that it'll it just looks scary right now and he's going to get up and he's going to be okay. And that is what happened. But like, it's not like combat sports haven't seen it go the other way before. 
Right. And that one was bad, man. That yeah. one was looked just very, very scary. I wondered the same thing too, though, because I find, especially the older I get, the less sort of celebratory I am about even seeing somebody who seems like they had a knockout coming, you know, uh, somebody who out here with all kinds of conspiracy theories about the international space station. You're like, mm, some sense should be knocked into that person. And then you see that happen, but you're just kind of like, Oh God, that is tough to watch. Yeah. Punched him right in the middle of his face. Yeah. This was uh, Josh Emmett's third fight of 2023 and his first win previous to that he had been on that five fight win streak before he ran into Yair Rodriguez in the interim featherweight title fight back in February he followed that up with a loss to Ilya Topuria in June at least he finishes the year for him on a high note with this amazing and terrifying knockout of Bryce Mitchell he says he wants to make one more run at the title I mean I don't know if that is uh realistic but at the same time not a terrible way to get started. Yeah. If and it is the case. The mentioning it being a short notice fight for Bryce Mitchell, like, I don't know how much that one really factored into this one. Cause it's not like they got into the third round and he gassed out cause he didn't have time to prepare. It was just, he, he slipped his head right into that one and, and Josh Emmett crushed him with it. That feels like the kind of thing that maybe could have happened to you at any time you fight Josh Emmett. Isaac Spooner writes, fellas, hear me out. Cody Garbrandt versus Dominic Cruz to stay frosty. Now, Cody Garbrandt goes out there, gets the first round knockout against Brian Kelleher. And uh, this is another one where I guess the the first thing I think is, really? I don't know. And then once I start thinking about it for mm-hmm. a second, I start thinking, actually, yeah, that actually does seem like maybe the best idea. Well, and it's not like there's a bunch of other instantly great ideas that jump out at you for either guy right now, right? Yeah, not a ton of extenuating circumstances. Plus, I would, I'd be curious to see if that one goes differently if you do it right now. Let's find I mean, out. You, you know Dominic Cruz probably is still sitting around in a dark room somewhere thinking about it at least once a day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not, not as often Dominic. as that one where Keith Peterson rolled in there smelling like cigarettes and booze and, and, and robbed him of a chance to be a UFC champion again, but still, but still. I was just going to say, not that Dominic Cruz seems like the kind of guy to hold a grudge. (laughs) To hold on to bitter defeats or anything like that. No. Christian Raider wrote in to say, we've seen some interesting hairstyles in the UFC, but Kelleher might have one of the strangest. What do you think was going on here? Does he want people to think he still has hair while wearing a hat? Was he in the (laughs) middle of a haircut and he remembered he had to go fight? Should I get this haircut? First of all, Christian, 100% you should get this haircut. Yeah. I mean, if you're even asking why you wouldn't. That, if you're even asking, clearly you've already decided to do that. So you might as well go and do it. This was an interesting haircut, though. It was almost like the, uh, the samurai haircut, where sometimes you just have the braid on the back and the rest of the, the head is shaved. But it was, you know, more like the, uh, more like the American... Uh, Selden, New York version, I guess, which is where Brian Kelleher is from. I saw him post this on Twitter, I think like back in the summer, where he he posted like having just got the the haircut and he was referring to it as the skullet. You get it? Yeah. Yeah. So. I guess it is sort of the opposite of a mullet in a way, but I don't know. Like it's definitely a thing he's doing on purpose. 
he like it's not like he's out here just feeling like yeah no this is a normal haircut people get right like my barber said that uh, people come in there all the time and ask for this so yeah it's totally normal like he knows he's doing a thing yeah 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 I don't know it's 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 not not on purpose it's yeah. not an accident all right you knew we were gonna get a bunch of emails about Sean Strickland rightly so and DDP going full brawl in the audience of UFC 296. We got this one from Tiny Dinky Daffy. Good to hear from whoever that is. Who writes, I'm no lawyer, but is it not illegal to attack someone at a public event? Shouldn't Sean Strickland have at least been arrested for attacking DDP, even if he wasn't formally charged? I think this is the this is the point where we would just say, A, yes, it is illegal to attack someone at a sporting event, but... You know, <laughs> maybe we're maybe it's maybe it's a sliding scale. Maybe See, it's we're not. It's not just like the scales of justice, right? It's it's a couple of professional fighters get into a scuffle, and one of them is Sean Strickland. Maybe we just give let him off with the stern warning. How about that? I had this conversation with uh, some coworkers earlier today, where you know one of the things that I write a lot for us is our mma stuff and they were like oh yeah i didn't see the fights how did it go and then the one thing that they had heard about how the fights went was i heard that they're like i saw a video of a fight in the crowd and i was like yeah and as i will point out here and i told them the, the ufc is gonna do this thing where it acts appalled at this breach of decorum but also who decided to sit those dudes like one row apart from each other when you saw them shown in the audience before any of this shit happened, it was like, did we have to put them so close? You have seats all over the arena. You can put them on the opposite sides of the cage if you want. There's no reason that you needed to put them that close. And then this thing happens. Come on. You got to bear at least partial responsibility for that, I think. But also, and they, like when I was telling my coworkers this and they were like, well, that seems like assault. Like, that seems like that you can't just be punching people in the face at a, at a sporting event. And I was like, in other workplaces, sure. <laughs> but this, this one, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to escort Sean Strickland out, suggest he watches the remainder of this one over at Buffalo Wild Wings. And then we're going to make sure we tuck that footage away for when we need to promote their fight. That's what we're going to do. We all know that. In some ways, I was surprised that the UFC showed it on the broadcast. I was surprised they kept talking. They like, they kept being like, "We have the footage. We're gonna show it to you later." It, yeah. Like, just kept teasing that footage on us. Yeah, I mean, I guess that is the difference that it makes when these two guys have a fight coming up. Yeah, right. They have a fight coming up, so yeah, let's play the let's play that footage on the broadcast. See if we can get a few more pay per view buys in for this one. It was shades of Conor McGregor, as you mentioned earlier, throwing the hand truck through the window of the bus, and Dana White sitting in the office with Brett Okamoto acting like he wasn't going to do business with Conor McGregor yeah. anymore. And then a few months later, they're using that exact footage to uh, sell a pay-per-view between Conor McGregor and Habib Nurmagomedov. So that's pretty much where you come down on that. Also, I think Dana White came out later and took, uh, took the, the blame. I don't know if you want to say blame, but basically he said, I'm the guy who decides where these guys sit. So uh, I don't know. I mean, that... That does seem like we could have maybe thought that one through for just 
30 seconds. Maybe I mean, this is, we did get we got this question from Jay Gargiulo, who wrote, uh, there are several things that were unsurprising about the scuffle in the stands between Sean Strickland and Drikus Duplessis at UFC 296. DDP provoking a potential opponent into flying off the handle when it seems like he was just trying to generate a little hype. Sean Strickland immediately resorting to violence like a hand slipping into a well-worn glove. <laughs> Chito Vera enjoying said violence like a connoisseur of savagery that he is. Now, this actually was the best thing was the the sort of like still photo, the zoomed in still photo of Cheeto cheering in the background. <laughs> really? Because I thought the best part was uh, where the one angle of the video where you can see Sean Strickland asking Gilbert Burns's family very politely to move. Yeah. I think Gilbert Burns' wife tweeted about it. Yeah. In fact, was like Sean Strickland is a gentleman or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And as soon as they move, he's just like, oh, would you mind? And as soon as they move, stands up on the, the chair, starts raining down blows upon Dreykus Duplessis' head. I mean, everybody got to do their stuff. Yeah. Jay goes on to write, The MMA world being more entranced by a pointless and stupid melee than most of the actual fights on the card. What was unexpected, however, was Dana White saying that he organizes the seating chart for every UFC event. He doesn't even attend every UFC event. Yes, he, yet he's fine-tuning the seating chart like he's the mother of the bride. <laughs> this is what the... <laughs> This is what the head of a multi-billion dollar organization feels is worthy of his time. How is this possible? So there you go. Uh, we had Lester Green come in and write, As the internet has exploded with Sean Strickland's brawl with DDP, I found another clip of Strickland from this week a bit more interesting. Sean was asked a question about Colby Covington this week, and his answer was very telling and, dare I say, endearing? Strickland's disgust with Colby's comments about Leon Edwards' father seem to illustrate a distinct difference between Colby and Sean. Colby seems to grasp for whatever he can say to be offensive or make a headline, seeming to turn a blind eye to any line that he may be crossing. While Strickland may also be playing up his own inflammatory personality, Sean, for the first time, may have shown a semblance of a moral compass. Am I crazy, or is white shirt Strickland primed for an anti-hero style face turn? I think that really the difference that that illuminates is the difference between a guy who is working a gimmick that where he set out to do a thing to get a certain response and turns out he's not that good at doing the thing and still has to like lean harder and harder into it. And a guy who is sort of just being himself yeah. and his himself turns out to sometimes be outrageous and baffling but is more genuine is colby covington's bit clearly like he he set out to do this and like we've talked i think we talked about it on the power hour where because he's not clever or funny or even just very good at delivering the lines that he is clearly pre-prepared for this stuff he has to lean into being more and more awful and more and more shocking. And that's what leads him to say shit like this about Leon Edwards' father. Because he needs to find something new that is terrible enough that it breaks through to a new level of shock. With people saying, I can't believe what Colby Covington would say at this press conference. Like, that's what he needs to get. Because it can't be just like Will Ch Chael Sonnen did it where he was so funny where you would be like, even when you felt like he had crossed a line or something, you'd be like, but I did laugh though. I did have that involuntary response. Colby doesn't have that, so he has to just be awful. Yeah. And Sean Strickland, his 
it has more nuance to it in a way because it does seem like just who he is. Like he might be turning the volume up a little bit at times and being like stuff where he knows this is this is the kind of stuff that maybe should stay in the old brain pan every once in a while. Maybe some of the strange thoughts that a person might have, but they might not give voice to until they've had a chance to mull it over some. He might be doing that, but his is not just like, I'm trying so hard to just be an an unconscionable dick when I otherwise would not be. Yeah. I mean, the main difference seems to be that Sean Strickland is actually about that life. And by that life, I mean the life of a stark raving lunatic, right? (laughs) Whereas Colby Covington is sort of pretending to be the person that he is. And if anything, we saw this difference very specifically illuminated when Kamaru Usman tried to run up on Colby Covington in the buffet line at the UFC. And Colby Covington's response basically was to look uh, both scared and with like the stark realization that he has created a character that now he is expected to be all the time when he's just standing there in his cargo pants, basically trying to be like, I'm off the clock now, bro. I'm actually being Colby Covington at this moment. Uh, where as before I was being the Colby Covington in front of the cameras before. And so I thought we were all going to be cool about it. Whereas, you know, goddamn good and well, Sean Strickland would have no problem brawling in the buffet line. We saw that pointed out this weekend, jumping over the first row of chairs to go after DDP. If had it been, you know, DDP rolling up to Sean Strickland while they were waiting at the buffet line, look out. Because you would have had a brawl on the casino floor right there. Yeah, I mean, and you see it with these videos of like Sean Strickland rolling up on somebody trying to run away from a car accident. And Sean Strickland is going to be holding them at gunpoint in front of his house. There is no off the clock for Sean Strickland. He got a fucking mailbox gun, Chad. That man has mm-hmm. a gun to use to walk to the mailbox just in case shit happens. Colby Covington, when they ran up on him in the line at the buffet, was like, I'm just trying to get some crab legs. I... I'm not working right now, guys. I'm, this is I'm on break, you know, and realizing to his dismay that you don't get a break when you make your whole thing that you are absolutely awful to everybody. The same way when people running up on you outside the poppy steak, yeah. like, that that is a definite clear difference. Is that and that? But again, I think that it's core. It still comes down to the same thing. One of them is genuine, and one of them is not. And did you see this? These quotes I saw it from like I think Brett Okamoto's story or something on ESPN. Uh, where it quoted Colby Covington's father at one point where he's like, what I see is a kid doing what he thinks he has to do for his career to get to the next level. And if you tell me that that's the case, and I'm not saying I believe this is the case, but if you tell me that in reality, Colby Covington is a good hearted person who doesn't have any malice in his heart for anybody and is out here competing in mixed martial arts because it's a sport and he loves to compete in it. Um, but for career ambition's sake, decided that the only way forward was to be awful all the time in just the the shittiest possible ways to everybody. That's actually sad as hell. Yeah. And, and should be depressing to us worse. about our sport. Yeah. And in my opinion, in some ways makes it worse because yes. it's far more cynical yes. to do it that way. And, and I don't think like morally, I don't think it makes a difference. Right. If you're still saying that stuff and putting it out into the universe, it doesn't matter if you mean it or not. It is kind of worse because it means like if you are that good hearted person who made this choice, it means you know better. 
and you made and you you made this decision for your own sake for your own like ambition you were like well if i have to be an awful person and have everybody think i'm an awful person and to spread enmity and discord and spew venom at everybody everywhere i go to get what i want career wise then that's what i'll do yeah all right, we're going to take this one from your favorite refrigerator magnet about the other out-of-the-cage plot line from UFC 296. The refrigerator magnet writes, At the end of the day, did all of us come away as winners during the UFC 296 Ian Gary experience? We as fans and media were able to, reve- to revel in the silence of an absence, Gary, while also getting a better matchup with the rebooking against Jeff Neal. Gary himself was perhaps able to raise the bar on fight week antics and stay relevant. And lastly, Jeff Neal has a crack at sweet revenge. What are your opinions? Uh, I mean, they did roll up and put Ian Gary into another high profile fight, the fight he was supposed to have a while back in the first place. And so aside from the fact that he was not able to perform against Vicente Luque this week, it didn't seem like he lost that much. I mean, people were questioning the pneumonia, questioning his his motives for not showing up for the various pre-fight events and maybe not showing up for the fight. But we were also already questioning Ian Gary's various motives about things. And so maybe it did work out for the best for him. I don't know. Yeah, I mean... I don't think that that's how he's feeling right now. I don't think probably not. He's sitting around being like, well, this was, this was great. Honestly, great. 10 out of 10 experience <laughs> that I've had here. Um, you know, although if you zoom out the big picture, maybe it'll end up being not the worst thing for him to step back and let some of this shit cool off a little bit, you know, because I especially feel like the way people got like hyper-focused on Ian Gary's relationship with his wife and all that stuff I don't know if that's the kind of thing that has staying power for MMA fans or even other fighters to focus on. If he if he comes back, you know, fights a month or two from now, whatever, I feel like people will maybe have gotten that out of their system a little bit. And maybe then you'll get to be evaluated on the merits a little more. Who knows? Nikki Spliff over on Patreon, wrote us to say, So I watched me some of the old karate combat last week and was pleasantly surprised. The production and commentary were bad, but in a fun, entertaining way. The fights were violent and competitive. The pit was hilarious. Guess what happens when you back someone up against a 45-degree angle? They fall every damn time, <laughs> LOL. It looks like some playground shit, but the best part by far was sudden death. I liked the hair standing up on the back of my neck. I was I was like hair standing up on the back of my neck, wake up my dog sleeping next to me on the couch, exciting i think uh what do you think of sudden death rounds would it work for the big time or is it just silly little guy promotion uh i don't actually know what this is because we were saying this over on the patreon page the only things that i have seen about karate combat is their social media presence and i like it i like everything i see from them on Twitter and everywhere else. You could say that I am karate combat curious at this point. <laughs> I just haven't actually watched an event. I saw Sam Alvey became their heavyweight champion over the weekend. And I saw some clips of him celebrating uh, after the victory, but I have not aside from highlights. I have never actually watched a karate combat event. So I don't know what they do 
in sudden death rounds. I know that calling your combat sports overtime sudden death is maybe begging for it. Okay. This one, I mean, when the ultimate fighter does this, they call it a sudden victory round. Yeah. And what they mean really is just one, one more round, uh, winner of that. If they, if nobody gets a finish winner of that one, that wins the whole thing, but which is sort of how it already kind of works to some extent. We just don't know it because we don't have open scoring, but yeah, I mean, I actually, I, I'm going to admit here, I meant to watch this karate combat after we were talking about it on the Patreon. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm a little bit interested. I wonder what the actual live experience of watching was. And then almost immediately it left my brain and I forgot that I was even talking about it and went out and met some friends for beers. So maybe next time karate combat <laughs> is what I'm saying. In fairness. So much is happening all the time. It is all hard to keep all of the combat sports news in your brain. Uh, Those Miller Lights aren't going to drink themselves, Chad. No, they are not. We got this one from Shitty Cuz, Roland 60s Crip. Okay. So nice to hear from them. They write, simply put, how promising or how would you rate the UFC 299 Miami card as announced by Dana White? And what is the fight that tickles your fancy the most? Now, here is the announced card so far. Uh, Michael, Venom, Michael Venom Page versus Kevin Holland. Gilbert Burns versus Jack Della Maddalena. Sonia Dong versus Peter Yan. Ian Gary versus Jeff Neal. Now, the MVP Kevin Holland fight is a bit of an interesting one because... I believe prior to this weekend, we did not know that MVP had actually signed with the UFC. There was some rumor to that effect. And I know that this is one of those ones that leaked on the internet because someone saw MVP versus Kevin Holland on the wall in the war room room behind Dana White while he was in there doing war room shit and cutting an interview on the internet. You could see the fights posted up behind him, and one of them was MVP versus Kevin Holland. But, you know, with the war room, you don't know what's done and what's just like wishful thinking. You don't know what's just a wish list up there on the wall of the war room. But I got to say, now that we know that Michael Venom Page is coming to the UFC and he's going to fight Kevin Holland, you have my attention. Yeah, honestly, my first thought was, Dana White keeps talking about how incredibly stacked UFC 300 is going to be, right? Like he, he, one of his things he said is that when people see the lineup, they're going to be like, holy shit, that's the first prelim that the whole thing is going to be crazy like that. And then when I see how many of your, your pretty good stuff you're using up on UFC 299, one right before that, I'm going like, okay, I guess you must think you have a whole lot else in the clip because a lot of the stuff that I would think would be pretty good stuff you got here, you know? I mean, I'm sure. First of all, Dana White has no fucking idea what's going to be on UFC 300 at this moment. So the fact that his main talking point at this point seems to be you will be wowed from the first prelim on. I mean, he is hashtag just saying stuff. I mean, I'm sure they will put together an amazing card because they have an almost unlimited ability to do so. But he doesn't know. He's just bullshitting right now, and we'll we'll figure it out when we get there. This two, I know this UFC two ninety nine card though is he's sort of giving everybody what they want here. Yeah, right. Like Song Yudong asked for this fight against Peter Yan after his most recent win. Ian Gary and Jeff Neal were supposed to fight once before, and then Gilbert Burns and Jackie Flatnose. Uh, sure, why not? Let's let's do it. I mean, maybe that's what we. We rebrand this one. We call it, just go back to the naming of pay-per-view events and call it UFC 299 Wish Fulfillment. 
Next question this week came to us from Area Code Zero, who asked, why aren't the elaborate fight matrix rankings accepted as the authoritative rankings throughout the land? Now, this is not a bad question, and the fight matrix rankings are wide-ranging and deep and consider fighters from different organizations and puts them together on a single ordered list in stark contrast from the UFC rankings. And the only thing that I would say is, A, I didn't know we were still doing them up until we got this email. And two, at this point, I have to be honest in telling you, I have no idea how these rankings are devised. It, it looks like there is some kind of analytic system that goes into making the rankings, but I don't know what that is. Otherwise, I would say, hell yeah, good point. Maybe we should be looking at the fight matrix rankings because they would seem a little bit more uh, uh, impartial and perhaps uh, scientific than what we're doing over with the UFC rankings. But I, I'm not I'm not clear on the process at this point. Yeah, neither am I. But I also feel like even if you did have a clearly uh, objectively better process than the UFC's process, which lately seems to be like some dude on the local sports talk radio who you never heard of and a website nobody reads, like not the, the cream of the MMA media crop participating in these rankings and hasn't been for some time. And yet the UFC has the ability to just push its numbers as part of the broadcast all the time that even if you had a better system and that was ranking everybody in MMA and not just the UFC and all that kind of stuff, it don't you think it'd still just be overshadowed by Cause we would, and you're, when you're talking about it and you're talking especially about who deserves the next shot, let's look at who the top 10 welterweights are right now in the UFC. Like you would just end up going back to the UFC's numbers, wouldn't you? Cause you would know that the UFC is going to use them except for those times when they decide that it doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, in some cases, it might be uh, instructive, though, to use the other ones. So I think it would have been I'm, more I'm instructive or more useful back when we had more vibrant competition outside the UFC. Because when you end up in those situations where you're like, the best welterweight might be in another company, might fight for another promotion, and deserves to be considered on like a sport-wide top 10 list, as that, as that narrows a little bit, I don't know, maybe the importance of that also starts to disappear. All right, just a couple more here. We're going to go to this one from Rick Derringer, who writes, In 12 UFC weight classes, there are three US, U.S. champions. UFC has exploded globally over the last decade, giving new sporting heroes to nations around the world. Do you think this has any effect on their U.S. audience, the core audience? Uncle Sam doesn't dominate the game anymore. The all-conquering, all-American base of wrestling has been trumped by Combat Sambo from the mountains of Dagestan. Chants of USA, USA that once echoed the great halls of Buffalo Wild Wings are seldom heard these days. Do chants of Mahachev, Mahachev have the same ring to them? Do you think this has anything to do with the brand's hard pivot toward, quote, politically neutral leanings? The cowboy has ridden off into the sunset, but we're still making UFC great again as best we can. If we have less patriots inside the cage, then we best bring more focus to the ones sitting outside of it. Uh, there was a pretty loud UFC chant or USA chant this past weekend when Tony Ferguson was fighting Patty Pimblett, which is a weird one to do a UFC chant or USA chant during. Uh, I don't think it matters, honestly. Like the UFC MMA for first of all has always been an international sport. Uh, 
from the very beginning, the guy who and the family who basically invented the UFC are Brazilian. And then the uh, Japanese promotions essentially took most of the good fighters throughout the late 90s and early 2000s. And, you know, the, the, the sport has always had this international flavor, which is one of the great things about it. I also think that the UFC knows that there's more money to be had by going after these international markets than just staying home and promoting to Americans, where frankly, over the last decade or so, it seems as though they have realized that they've already got all the fans that they're going to get. And so in America, they're, yes, in America. So it seems like their expansion plan has been international instead of domestic, which I think is fine and good for them. And so uh, I think that uh, as long as as it is making them more money, then I don't think anyone really cares that much. I will say one of the things we've discussed in the past is whether or not the sport is moving away in general from Las Vegas and America, perhaps being the center of its universe. And uh, if and when Endeavor tries to sell to someone the possibility that it could be an international buyer. So I think a lot of stuff is changing in the sport right now, but I don't think one of the things that is changing is the the uh, depth of the international uh, talent pool and the emergence of these uh, non-American champions. Also, I think that if you look at how American fans react to American fighters, it's not the same that it, as how it works in some other countries where maybe because they have fewer of them, they get more excited about them. Just because you're an American who becomes a UFC champion or who rises to the top of a UFC division, that doesn't necessarily mean American fans will rally behind you. We don't necessarily do that. Yeah. I mean, we might in instances where we can get a USA chant going in the crowd or something, but it doesn't mean that they're going to ride or die for you the way they will, you know, for Conor McGregor when it came about Ireland and the entire country, it seemed, was supporting him. I think the UFC realized that. Because you think about some of the American UFC champs we have or have had recently, it's not like American MMA fans have necessarily rallied behind John Jones, yeah. you know, even yeah. with as good as he is. And I, I do think that they probably look at all the, the variety of athletes they have coming out of other countries and be like, well, okay. If you get one really good fighter out of Kazakhstan, then everybody in Kazakhstan could be super excited about that guy. That guy going to be meeting the president and shit, you know, whereas you get a good fighter out of Dayton, Ohio, and maybe after he's been on top for 10 years, Dayton, Ohio will have a him day or something. Give him the key <laughs> to the city or something the same way with Sean O'Malley, where it's like, you know, Montana in general, outside of the MMA bubble parts of Montana didn't really get that excited about Sean O'Malley until he became a champion. And then we were like, you're invited to the Grizz game, bro. Come wave the flag for us and everything. And still, it's just like we don't rally and we don't stay stay in support of a fighter the same way uh, people do in a lot of other countries. All right. In that same vein, perhaps we will finish with this one from The Spotlight, who writes, Wow. Over the years, it has become painfully obvious that the UFC, UFC cannot wait to get a title off every black dude not named DC, John Jones, or Israel. Seriously, from DJ to Woodley to Usman to Francis to all Joe, and now this stacked deck against Leon. 
Why is a defending active champion on a 12-fight win streak being forced to fight Colby Covington, whose most recent accomplishment is beating an emotional, aging, and distracted Masvidal? What makes it even worse is he has to do it in Vegas after selling $9 million in tickets at his last title defense. On top of that is the fact that he is in a hostile environment in front of Trump, Kid Rock, and probably still asleep Bryce Mitchell. And why? Because he did the work, his reward for being a violent for beating a violent personal past Usman twice and every other obstacle they put in front of him is this bullshit. I really don't feel the disgraceful treatment of UFC's black champions is discussed enough by MMA media. TJ gets a title fight just because he wanted it. Colby gets one for making weight. Chandler gets a Connor fight after sitting out for a year or so. Aljo got a belt and was asked to fight a teammate and then booked for an away title defense in Boston WTF. The setup is all too familiar. Would love to hear your take and congrats to the Grizzlies. Uh, this is a tricky one because I think it is obvious and well-documented that Dana White historically and somewhat coincidentally perhaps has a tendency to get crosswise with non-white champions, yeah. has, a, has a tendency to give a lot more rope, so to speak, to the white champions, and then for him suddenly to decide that many of his black champions are difficult to deal with, arrogant, as he said about Francis Ngannou at one point. Uh, kid can't get out of his own way, he can continue to say about all Jermaine Sterling. Uh, does it go beyond that? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not totally sure. I don't necessarily know that the deck was stacked against Leon Edwards this past weekend. He was a pretty big favorite against Colby Covington. I think they put Colby Covington out there because they thought maybe Colby Covington was the most marketable guy that uh, Leon Edwards could fight at the moment. We just listed off the welterweight contenders earlier in the show. And it's not like there were a lot of great options uh, aside from perhaps Shavkat, Rachmanov, and uh, Bilal, potentially. But uh, are they dying to get the belts off all those people? I think in the UFC, it is a case-by-case basis regarding what they think will make money and perhaps somewhat in a in a lesser vein, like who they have trouble dealing with. Now, they do seem to make a point to have trouble dealing with their black champions. So I don't think that this point is completely without merit. I think that there probably is something going on there. Uh, I don't know if there is a systematic uh, plan underway to, to do that. I do think that the UFC wants to get belts on the people that they want to have belts on. And I don't think you can deny that whether or not that breaks down uh, long racial lines. I, I don't totally know. Yeah, I mean, I agree that there is a long and documented history of Dana White just continuing to have these, uh, continuing to butt heads with black champions. That's clear. But I, like this instance with Leon Edwards and Colby Covington, I do think that the UFC was just like, who brings some heat to a Col- to a Leon Edwards fight? Because Leon, as good as he is as a fighter, he's not really geared that way where there's not going to be a ton of shit talk back and forth. If he, he it's at least it's not going to come from him. It's not going to start from him. He's, he doesn't bring that type of energy to his fights. And so they know you can throw Colby Covington in there. His whole thing is shit talk at this point. So, you know, he'll generate some interest and some energy for you there. And he did. I mean, he did exactly what they were hoping he would do prior to the bell. Yeah. <laughs> 
now, if the broader question is, does MMA and the UFC have a race problem? The answer without question emphatically is yes. Yes. Yes, so, it does. Well, and it just you, you also look around at the the demographics of at least the American MMA audience, especially the one that you see attend live events like where they were cheering for Colby Covington pretty hard before and Boo and Leon Edwards. And I was surprised a little bit and yeah. also feeling like, yeah, no, this is who goes to UFC events, I guess. The same way, you know, at least part of why Trump likes going to these is these are some of the only sporting events he can go to in America and be cheered. Yeah, he, if he yeah. shows up at a fucking Mets game, they're going to let him have it, man. Like, he he can't even get within 100 yards of an NBA game. Like, there's no way. Like, he goes to any of these other, like, big-time sports events and doesn't just get showered with booze. But he goes to the UFC, and they like him. So, it's like, it's a demographic difference. And maybe, if, if anything, that the if the UFC is responding to, it's that they think, like, well, here's what our fans seem to be into. You know? Which... Again, we're talking about things that will make you question your interest in this sport. Yeah. Add one to the list. Yeah. All right, we're going to wrap it up there for this week. Thanks, everybody, for listening. As a reminder, we are over on the Patreon page all week. Check us out over there, patreon.com slash co-main event. Just loads of content you can get your hands and your ears on. Uh, for the rest of you, this is the last proper of uh, 2023, I would think, because we are off next week for the holidays, and then we will be back uh you know the maybe not even the first week of January since we'll be at uh, we'll be at the Winter Classic. That's right. We will um, remind listeners in the Seattle area, you can come party with the CME. So we'll catch up with you guys as soon as we can. Thanks everybody for listening. For now, we are done. We are through. We are out. We did get some emails here from people blaming us for making them Grizz fans. Anthony Prokopchuk wrote in to say. After listening to the unfettered discourse regarding your beloved Montana Grizzlies, I found myself with a free afternoon on Saturday and decided to check out the FCS semifinals against the NDSU Bison. And goddamn, what a game. Yeah. The atmosphere and fan passion reminds me of my Winnipeg Blue Bombers in the Canadian Football League and the double overtime with a face mask penalty wide receiver throw that caught on a tip drill. Chef's kiss. Please take a victory lap and share the Grizz love to the listeners of the I mean, if you're out there listening to the CME and you haven't jumped on board with the Grizz yet, you're missing out. Yeah. Straight train from hell going right to the national championship game in Frisco, Texas. Where they are almost 5-1 to one underdogs. Yeah, but, let's not talk know, about that right now. We'll, we'll check it out on January 7th. So, That's why they play go. the games. 